Thanks, Robert. Loads for the panel and uh, indeed for the audience to digest and discuss there for, and as I say, for you to get involved. We will have, as I say, a roving mic or two around. Uh, and as I said before, if you could give your name and if you have a particular stance that's of relevance, uh, you might do that as well. Can I introduce, before we move on, the rest of our panel, uh, Robert is staying with us, but we're also joined uh, by Dr. Richard Boyle, Head of Research at the Institute of Public Administration with a key focus on public service modernization to this end. He has worked wi uh, widely with both Irish central and local government, uh, as well as the World Bank and the OECD. Deputy Joan Burton was Taunisha, the first female leader of the Labour Party from 2014 to 2016, uh, a former Minister for Social Protection, as we have heard, and at the height of the water charges controversy, which I think everybody knows as well at this stage, also held, held a number of uh, Minister of State portfolios during a distinguished political career, which is not over yet. Uh, needless to say. Um, Kevin Cardiff is the uh, former Secretary General at the Department of Finance and a member of the European Court of Auditors since March 2012. His entire career has been one of public service working across various government departments but mainly at the core uh, of affairs in the Department of Finance not least on that night of the bank guarantees in September 2008. And to give us a little outside perspective, Jill Rutter is the Programme Director of the London-based Institute for Government, directing the Institute's work on better policy making, how to manage relationships with arm's length bodies, and that small matter of Brexit. Uh, she is also uh, acclaimed as an expert commentator on how governments make policy. So uh, that is our panel. If I could, um, maybe I'd start with you, Richard, as a kind of the the honest broker, neither civil servant nor politician in this. And, and Robert referred to the public interest, and it's a phrase we hear and we know. But who determines, big question, what's in the public interest? Because a lot of the time, as Robert says, it's, it's unpalatable in terms of the public, but it's nonetheless in their interest. Well, thank you for the nice, simple question. Um, I'll be back in about a half an hour. <laughs> yeah. I mean... The straight answer is there is no obvious answer to that because people have different perceptions. I think the key thing, particularly from a policy-making point of view, when thinking about the issue of the public interest is at the start of the process to keep your options open in terms of option analysis, that there are different options to be considered and to think through what the implications of those options may be for different stakeholder groups, different citizen groups. Uh, and that then, if you, as long as you don't narrow down too quickly your, your analysis, that leaves open the scope for debate about what is in the best public interest, because you've got a range of issues to consider. Uh, and just to build in one other uh, factor to that, I think how we build the informed view of citizens into the process also helps get a better sense of what the public interest is. And I say informed view advisedly in that, you know, quick vox pops or public consultation by email where you get particular responses but not others, it needs to be a, a bit more considered and as is often the case is, is, is and it's being developed, I think, more widely now in the public service. Things like the... Um, you know, the citizens' engagement panels and those kind of initiatives where you're getting a broader perspective built in 
so that that voice is, is factored in. So there isn't a simple answer, but I think that there are things we can do to better inform what we mean by the public interest. Yeah, Kevin, I wrote down another phrase uh, that Robert referred to, uh, a contested space of no consensus. Does yeah. that encapsulate what we're talking about in terms of that nobody can define precisely what is in the public? Different people have different takes on this. And if you take it from your role as a very senior civil servant, is there a difficulty in having to dilute that somewhat because of the pragmatism of politics? Well, the, the really important thing when you're a civil servant engaged in, polit in policy is mandate. You don't have a mandate as a civil servant to make policy for the country. You just don't. That's a political process. And if we want a genuine democracy, the civil service cannot abrogate that. The other thing to be aware of in relation to the contested space is not cont it's contested against somewhat institutional lines. There are vetoes built into our system. So our system is often, uh, we were talking about earlier in relation to water policy and so forth, our system is often determined by what you cannot do because a vested interest has a veto or because a department has a veto or because a, in, an individual very often, even in the banking crisis we found individuals trying to exercise a veto because something wasn't working for them. And you can in a crisis be in a sort of an almost a blackmail situation in day to day policy making or in this situation where you're having the, the most valued policy maker is having to navigate between all of these different vetoes. And we need to move to a values not vetoes system where the mandate given to individual, uh, to the political system is substantial enough to overcome those, those vetoes within the system. A crisis is a great thing for overcoming a veto. Mm. A European directive can be a wonderful thing, but we have, have too many of them. Especially in the European space, we need to be very wary of mandates because in the European space, we have, we have to share our rulemaking powers with hundreds of millions of people around Europe. And we don't, it's not, a, it's not one person, one vote. Mm. We have a much bigger vote than a, a person in Germany, in, in fact, because of the way the system has worked out, a federalist, uh, federal kind of arrangement. But we have to be aware that it's not just our mandate that counts in Europe. It's not just a German mandate, it's a joint mandate. It means that many things that are desirable, for example, in my view, finishing the banking union, cannot happen because there isn't yet a popular mandate for them in a sufficient number of places. And, but mandate is important. If we try to go ahead of mandate, we lead, it leads to uh, real despair sometimes, it leads to resistance, and it leads to, in the end, revolt. We need our mandate. And how do you know the tilting point on that? Because, uh, you know, if you wait equally so long to get that mandate, that horse has bolted, if that isn't a mixed metaphor. Well, if, if you're, I think if you're a Democrat, you don't try to find the tilting point. Mm. You try to respect the popular mandate. This, this need, Joan Borden, to align uh, the civil service and politics. As, as, a, as a government minister, and with all of the responsibility goes along with that, but knowing that at any stage, you're, you're going to face the electorate. How difficult is, is that dilemma? Well, it's a challenge, and sometimes it's a very exciting challenge, because remember, the reward of political office is to be able, perhaps, to implement uh, some or all of your agenda. Um, now, obviously, uh, the agenda, let's say, of the 2011 government 
was essentially to try and save the economy because I am conscious that we're at the anniversary, the 10th anniversary, and in a way, it's probably wonderful that memories have dimmed, but remember, 330,000 people lost their jobs, mm. became unemployed, numerous firms. I remember walking around Galway, just going for a walk around the docks when I was in Galway uh, for some event, and like I did in Dublin at the time, literally counting the number of closed shops down around the docks area. The social welfare office is quite close to there. Mm. And it was just, to be honest, catastrophic. And I mean, in a way, it's good that as a society, that memory and um, that kind of savage hurt has, has dimmed. Now, the title of this conference, How Not to Do Public Policy, I have to say in the context of the anniversary, is not to give a blanket guarantee to a select but absolutely a significant and huge number of financial institutions. And I think a lot of our difficulties with policy, not just in Ireland, but around Europe, uh, going back to what Kevin is saying, and the rise of populism arises in many ways from that collapse and that great recession. So I do think the discussion is very important because if we are to genuinely have an inclusive democracy where everybody's situation and opinion is of value. But in practice, to give you a more practical answer to your question, after, the, after a, an election, people look around to see where are the numbers. And in recent times in Ireland, it has been coalition over a long period of time. I mean, uh, Fianna Fáil dropped the principle of coalition, really, in the they were opposed to it always, mm. and they dropped it in the late 80s. So essentially, uh, and some people in the audience <laughs> may have taken part in this, uh, in, uh, you know, um, essentially what you have is you have the, the different parties who might become part of the coalition. Um, you have their manifestos which is basically what they said to the people they wanted a mandate for. But the people haven't given any of them the vote. This is the inherent problem. So you get a couple of people to take a manifesto and basically work on what I call a traffic light system. You know, if you have agreement on the policies, on two policies, that's green. If it's very uh, vague and uncertain, but there's potential in it, that's orange needs more con consideration. And if there are glaring, radical, standoff differences between the two policies, let's say like Fianna Fáil and uh, possibly the Green Party on the issue of land tax, mm. and some of that might be around language, but that's the way it is, that, that's red. So really, if you get that kind of documentation and you get, and, and then also you have to have some kind of chemistry uh, between the principles, or, uh, as in 2011, in very difficult circumstances, the idea that this is about saving the country and this is about trying to do the best. My interpretation of that um, was to try and get people back to work as being the best way of restoring people's uh, economy. But also, when I went into the Department of Social Protection, you know, I found a department which had 
really fantastic people in it. And I think it's important to say that in the context of the Irish Public Service. There are a lot of fantastic public servants in Ireland uh, with high, high levels of integrity in terms of their job. But, but, but the difficulty was that uh, to say it was a Cinderella department would be, you know, probably unfair to Cinderella. It was in a very difficult place and it had just got over 300,000 direct extra customers mm -hmm. who wanted to go to a hatch uh, or had to or hum humiliated to go to a place that most mm -hmm. of them never thought they would ever go to and never had gone to and make sure that they got some kind of decent service. And I, I decided as minister to go and visit the different offices privately. I didn't tell the media about it really. And I went and I sat in social welfare office after social welfare office around the country. And the first thing was the filth and the dirt of the offices and the complete insult that constituted to the citizens who were coming in to use these services. And I remember I had massive rows uh, with, well, discussions, I should say. <laughs> discussions, uh, temporary discussions, discussions. Uh, with people like the OPW and others. Uh, that we, we had to just literally, at a minimum, paint the place and clean it and get these piles. I could tell you about social welfare offices where there were applications for certain kinds of benefits, particularly relating to health. There were piles like that on the ground. Um, I mean, you could smell the paper when you went into the offices. So I do think that leadership in the context of people who are in government is really important. And I have to say, in my view, going back to the water debate, and I, I, don't, I, I came in slightly late, I don't know if it was discussed. There was, um, if you like, previous history mm. in that department in the 2011 government, and Dave, you'll know this, people may remember there was to be a septic tank charge of 50 mm. euros, and I think right throughout the country, farmers said, we're not having that. Now, I'm not sure if it was the 50 euros or it was the principle that we'd old septic tank systems uh, that were probably a breach of EU directives. Now, Phil Hogan, who was, let's say, robust as a ministerial personality and certainly not to be uh, trifled with, he went around the country and even Big Phil was not really able to make a dent in it. And this, at this point, and overnight, certainly without telling his Labour Party colleagues, uh, who had, if you like, been explaining and defending and so on, just like that, he reduced it, I think it was from 50 to 5. Now, I think as an example of policy making and walking back from policy, it was the political thing to do. Mm. But in the context of the uh, programme, as it were, or the deal with the Troika that we inherited, it made what happened in terms of, um, of potentially having, personally, I, uh, I felt that if the property tax bedded down, that would be a very significant achievement. Uh, I, I, you know, I think my views are well known. When I became Thonish, I did my best to try and make it something which uh, came down to a level that was comparable to quite a few other countries. And also uh, that you would have maybe engineers who, like a doctor, could say, I'm a doctor, I'm going to explain this to you. But engineers in Irish water who would come out in public 
and say to the resident uh, or the house owner, this is what this is about, this is what this means, and people could begin. Yeah, to I, make I think we got some sense of how, how uh, that worked with the revenue commissioners and bringing people out into the public space yes. to explain that. And by the way, and the quibble in social welfare, I just want to be clear to the, about this to people that Josephine referred to. Social welfare has access to a vast amount of data about the population. And I took an absolute line that as minister, A, every department wanted to pop over to social welfare and we'd say 10 euros here, 30 euros there. So that somebody on social welfare could end up having their, if you like, social welfare income dramatically uh, reduced by, you know, direct bites. Mm by different, uh, the, the most, the most uh, significant one was the Department of Justice wanted to be able to take fines out of social welfare income. That's a complex thing to do, but the other thing was the protection of people's data. And because revenue actually acts as the collector of, P, of PRSI, for instance, for the Department of Social Welfare, it did take time to set up a system where there wouldn't be breaches of privacy uh, of individuals' data, but also where it would be laid down in law, unlike how social welfare is governed by law. Okay, uh, and I, I will. I want to come to Jill in a second, but I just want to kind of maybe turn that on, on onto its head, Robert. Maybe put it to you. How frustrating is the process when you come up with a public policy in the public interest, and it's dampened by political pragmatism, or is that just the reality of your 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 so life? That's the, as Kevin said, it's the. the political system has a mandate. Mm. So it's our job to serve the system. Uh, and our job is to, is to analyze uh, options, uh, develop options, and put those options to uh, the politicians. And they decide uh, what to do, yes or no. Uh, and then we go off and implement it. And, and, and so you know, it, it's, the, the, the line is, 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 pretty, is pretty clear. Uh, and I've, I've never, and you know, in the end of the day, if you work on something, and this happened, and I've been with colleagues that have a long time worked on something, and then in the end, it just wasn't, it wasn't sellable politically and we weren't able to do it. And that's disappointing for people if they put a lot of, so that's, that's life though, people get on with it. But, let's but say civil servants I think generally, you know, civil servants know, <coughs> know what their job is. They know what they're about. They're there to, to serve minister of the day, government of the day. Uh, and they know what, what, where their job begins and ends and where the political process starts. Let's say hypothetically there was a minister for finance who decided to cut, or a minister for agriculture, yeah. who decided to cut a septic tank charge from 50 euro to five euro yeah. Uh, yeah. and made no reference, not alone to political colleagues, but not a lot to so, uh, his own department. How, how frustrating might that be hypothetically? Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so there's very good reasons for the original mm. uh, septic tank charge. Mm. And those reasons were built up by our colleagues in, in the department for a number of years, and they're very good reasons, and they're very good reasons behind the nature of that policy. So look, it's no, it's, it's, it's no secret to say that, that people would be disappointed, and we think that's not the correct thing to do to make a decision you know, like that. But ultimately, if that's what the minister wants to do, and the minister has the support of the Taoiseach of the day, uh, and the government will then so be it. Is that's the way. That's the way it is. Like there are alternative ways of running a country. None of which seem very attractive to me. Uh, I'm sure most people here in this room would think that alternatives aren't very attractive either. Mm. That's that's the way it is. But like you know, well, we're all grown ups. That every understands what Minister Hogan was was mm. doing there. Okay, everybody knows what was going on in the context of the time. But oh, civil servants live to fight another day. And his colleague said, you know, there's a, there's a long game being played, you know? There's a long <laughs> game being played. And some of these people have been around for a long time. That's true. Uh, and, and, so and you might have another pop. You might have another yeah, pop again. There's a the kind of a five-year cycle to an extent. But Richard, and I, I'm conscious I, I, I haven't uh, brought Jill into this yet. The same could be said about water charges. 
very good reason for them. We needed an investment in water. Uh, and yet, for political reasons, that unraveled and was gone. Now, you know, we, uh, Jim's paper makes all of the, it goes through the entire argument uh, where they, there wasn't the level of vision, there wasn't the level of checks and balances and all of that. But ultimately, it came down to being a political decision. Isn't that the same thing as the septic tank, albeit on a much bigger scale? But I think, as, as Robert and Kevin have both said, ultimately, uh, and Eamon said earlier on today, politics mm. is, at the end of the day, unless you live in a different system, the final arbiter. So that will always be the case. You try to do your best as a, an academic or a public servant to provide the best possible advice you can to the political system, but ultimately they will make the decision. So, uh, and the, the public and general context informs that decision-making at the political level as well. So there's a, this issue about communications and how you communicate mm policy and what the reason for it is and why it might be done is another important element in that equation. But I think we are, that is the situation. So there will be decisions that are made that um, maybe academically or for whatever reason you think, oh, well, I, I wish that wasn't made, but that that's just the way it is. And, and I think as Robert said, mm. there aren't a whole lot of better systems out there that come up ultimately with a procedure that, that, that enables you to on balance muddle your way through as best as you can. Jill, um, just maybe as I said, to get an outside perspective, I'm sorry for not bringing you in before this, but um, your Institute for Government mm. and the work that you would do there. First of all, any observations on what you've heard in terms of the Irish situation over the several hours this morning that you've listened to? Um, a lot of it sounds very familiar, I think, is actually the key thing that, uh, that you know, for every example we've had from the Irish side, I'm thinking of parallel, British examples, but I think, you know, I'm absolutely with, I'm a former civil servant as well, so I'm absolutely with uh, both Robert and Kevin that none of us have stood for election and therefore ultimately we don't have the right to decide. I think one of the things though that civil servants can find very frustrating is there are good reasons for a political override and bad reasons for political override. And it's the sense that either people aren't engaging seriously either with the evidence you're producing that maybe the policy that they want to do isn't going to produce the right outcomes, uh, if that's what they're doing, or some of the things that we were discussing earlier, that actually people are saying, just do it. You know, you can get over all these implementation problems. Uh, Robert mentioned some of the work we've been doing uh, looking at the history of a very, very big reform in the UK designed to simplify our also massively complicated welfare system uh, called universal credit. And this was something that had political agreement that actually this was a sensible reform to roll six benefits into one single benefit and to do it. But it was one of the things where the department with confronted with new ministers just after an election, we always have this sensitivity that just after an election you haven't built those relationships with ministers. They slightly don't trust you because you work for their predecessors, uh, that they sort of feel you maybe have personal loyalties to them rather than to you. So the civil service is always quite gung-ho to be can-do, and of course, Minister, we can do it, but didn't challenge the timescale that was incredibly short for implementing a really, really complex project with a lot of IT. And that project has now, originally, the system was supposed to be fully functional by 2015, 
I think the latest rollout date now, final rollout date is 2022 and is probably moving further into the mid 2020. So I think there's some real problems when the relationship between civil servants and ministers doesn't allow actually evidence to be brought to play, implementation issues to be brought into play before a decision is taken. One of the other things I thought was quite interesting were some of the comments about where policy came from manifesto. So the politicians have a mandate, but they have a mandate before they've been able to engage on is this doable. And one of the things we give, we do work at the Institute for Government with opposition parties before they come into government. And we say, set high level priorities, say what you want to do, but don't nail down the detail because actually you want to be able to engage with the people who are gonna to have to do it before you'll tie yourself to a particular way of achieving your objective as opposed to you know, just saying what you're trying to achieve. So you might very well find that that's not the best way of doing it when you've had a chance to get some honest internal advice. So I'd say a lot of this uh, really Sounds does resonate at the moment. The, the, one of the, the yardsticks that your institute uses in terms of successful public policy yeah. is that it becomes embedded. I mean, given the, the, the ever-changing landscape in politics, uh, and I mean, I think Jim made the point uh, in relation even to the local property tax, and it's the reason he called it, I think, a qualified success, successful by every other yardstick. But there is always the possibility that a new political broom will come in and change that over. So in reality, when, when do you determine that policy is now embedded? Uh, I think there was, that was our definition of policy success, that we actually wanted something uh, not just to be simply reversed the next election, which is something that goes on a lot in the UK, may go on less in Ireland, I don't know, because actually one of the really interesting things is the most interesting reforms can't really deliver results within one electoral cycle. You really need a bit of duration, largely. You know, if you think of the legislative cycle followed by the implementation period you need, you're actually not really going to see that much, uh, that much result if you then reverse it uh, four or five years later. So that's one reason why we put that embedded. That may be too high a bar, actually, for successful policy. We were looking at the most successful policies uh, that we asked about, and those are the ones where really they actually just became the sort of starting point for new things. So I'd actually say, you know, do we count the council tax in the UK as a policy success? Uh, the council tax is our local property tax, which hasn't been revalued since 1992, AKA the year it was introduced. Um, <laughs> and politicians always found a reason not to revalue the base, um, which is that it's a lecturally pretty awful prospect. Uh, it's a lot more successful than the poll tax was, can I just tell you, which only lasted a year. So, uh, you're, you're the bar uh, is quite low down a prime on, minister. Uh, if that's success. And yeah. I have to say, I worked on the poll tax, so I was slightly worried that uh, <laughs> it's going to be introduced, uh, which was quite interesting. It actually had a very good policy process behind it. It was just all the political decisions were, uh, were misjudgments on an epic scale. Um, and we misjudged the implementation quite badly because we misjudged the context and things like that. It was quite interesting. So what part of it was water. good? Sorry, what, what part of it was left to be good? Uh, what was left to be good? Um, the, <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> it was a very good green paper, actually, which set out a lot of, <laughs> a lot of options, lots of nice graphs, lots of uh, modelling. Okay. Quite interestingly, compared to your water services thing, uh, we assumed that the Treasury wouldn't cut grants to local authorities, so we modelled it at coming in at half the rate it initially came in at. We assume there'd be a very long transition. 
which was then ditched by uh, a subsequent Conservative Party conference, and those actually would have made quite big differences. Because one of the one of the reasons quite a lot of policies I think go wrong is that you want to bring forward the gains too quickly, and bring forward the gains too quickly also mean you crystallise the losses too quickly. Uh, one of the policies we've studied most recently in the UK had a really quite long genesis and rollout, which is a thing called automatic enrolment for pensions, yeah. which the origin was in the commission uh, in the 2000s, set up for rather base political reasons, but actually was quite a long process. But then actually the reform has been rolled out over eight, nine years, very gradually of getting people to default into pension schemes. Also uses nudge techniques, which is quite interesting. But because they didn't try and do things very quickly, it's actually sort of had time to bed in. Mm. Whereas the poll tax, uh, was a massive pressure. We've got to have these gains straight away. And that meant all the losses came in straight away. So that was another thing. Uh, there are loads of other things I could talk we, all night about this, but back. I won't. Um, but it's quite interesting. But I think the revaluation thing is really interesting. One of the questions is, I think, in those is designing in the revaluation at the start. I think you almost need to do that in property taxes. Uh, and I think we should have done that in the council tax. Um, uh, but I would so say... So it gets more yeah. difficult the longer that you put that particular uh, proposition off, I would guess. Is there anybody that would like to come in with a, a question rather than me? Th this gentleman here. Uh, hi, Carl Fitzgerald from the National Economic and Social Council. I had a question for the panel regarding um, the value of expertise and evidence in policy making. I was struck in Robert's address, he used the phrase twice, uh, evidence-informed policy making. We're used to the phrase evidence-based policy making, and I just wonder, was there any significance in the difference? Uh, I think we learned from this morning's session that good policy is often thwarted by institutional problems, the role of vested interests, some ideological concerns, and irrational actors and markets. And one thing that def helps defend good policy is strong evidence that makes it robust. And if it is going to be evidence-based, academics and others understand that political override and mandate might happen, but if we were stronger about saying what the evidence says, whether you're a politician or even senior civil servants, wouldn't that help and shouldn't we, particularly at the moment with the rise of populism, put more faith in evidence and be stronger about what the evidence does say? You know, I think it's, it's I think uh, Gareth Fitzgerald years ago said, uh, for politicians, you need to uh, establish the facts. After that, you can, you can ignore them, you can twist them, you can distort them if you wish, but at least know the facts as, as best as we can establish them. I think that drives a lot of what we're doing. So I ask people, well, they come in to me and say, well, I think, well, what does the evidence say? Well, what information do we have? Have we done this before? What have we done in other countries? So, that's, so we, we, we are developing, trying to develop a much stronger culture of what we call inquiry, culture of, 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 of the real culture of wanting to know. And that can drive them. So people, if they're really curious, they'll go and they'll do better. <clears throat> and then they have to have the tools, though. So you do have to have people who are trained, not just economists, though, but sociologists, data people, uh, technicians of different varieties. You need people with different skills, different perspectives. You need to have the data. You need to try and link the data. But I think you do need to have, uh, need to have the culture. You know, you need to have to have people there and leadership organizations who want to know. Uh, so that's what, that's what we're trying to do. I think we're I think we're doing much better. Like if you go on to just to, to take our website, call and have a look at it uh, when you have a chance. And the amount of the number of reports, independent reports, the number of views, the amount of information that we now produce on what on what the government spends, 
what we're trying to get for that spending, what the options are around spending. So there's an enormous amount of information. If you look at the data, we now have 4,000 plus data sources which are open out there as part of the, 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 the open data project. So we think that's, that's, that's the way to go. So we do our job and have more informed debates and influence the process, but ultimately, the, the, as we've mentioned, the political system will decide what they do with that, and that's their, that's their prerogative. But I think certainly in this era of, you know, whatever, post-truth, fake news, whatever, there's more an obligation, I think, on the system to be focused on producing the facts and the evidence the best we can. Okay, Richard, do you want to come in on that? Just, just very quickly, I, I've spent most of my career advocating for a stronger evidence base for public policy and public administration generally. But I've always hated the term evidence-based policy because I, I think there isn't such a thing. I've never come across a policy that's entirely based on evidence. I think evidence-informed is a much better description okay. of what actually happens in practice, partly because even when you advocate better evidence and more use of evidence, the evidence, first of all, will be partial. So it's very rare you find you have all the data and when you come to look at it, you say, there will be gaps no matter what you do. And secondly, I think evidence is always only part of the story, that the, the, the political nous and the sense of, you know, what can be sold to people, what will be acceptable, mm. sometimes trumps what might seem logical, but in Again, practice won't actually work. Comes, comes so so I think evidence informed, I, I agree strongly with Robert, that things have developed and the better evidence base we have give, gives the scope for more informed policy but it is informed rather than evidence-based. Okay, John, you want to say? Um, we'll go right around on Yeah, what I was going to say is that, in my view, I think what's been said broadly, um, I support. However, there's one area that's exempt from this, and that's the issue broadly of taxation. And who pays tax? How fair is the tax system? How unfair is the tax system? So, uh, you know, if you're looking at government income flows in and you're also looking at costs, uh, large areas of taxation still seem to me to be um, uh, exempt from the requirement to publish data. I mean, we have a crisis at the moment which has been evolving for quite a long time about corporation tax and the fact that very big companies in Ireland pay no tax and that Europe at the moment is developing a digital tax and has offered several versions as I think Kevin would know. Um, the second thing on the tax front uh, is that we don't publish that data in the way that citizens can get to know about other areas of the spending and indeed uh, the ins and outs of how PAYE works and who pays and who contributes and so on. I think in this age of populism that that is a really significant omission and I do think that really across the political and the civil service divide there should be an agreement to find a way. I mean the problem again is privacy uh, and you know it's possible to identify who the 10 big companies are. But it's a fundamentally important thing. The other area, when I was, uh, you know, Minister for Social Protection, in 2012, I was speaking about the need to have low wages, a, a, a low wage commission in this country. Now, we've much less precarious work than, than you have in the United Kingdom. But 
that took a long time. It wasn't until after I became Tánaiste and I came in just as a commissioner. But we actually need now as an economy, for example, because there is a crisis around us and around rents, to move uh, to a living wage economy. And again, I would say, particularly to people like Robert and Kevin in public service, that there is a serious need to generate more data and actually just ask yourself, you know the people cycling around with Deliveroo packs on their back? Mm. What actually is their situation? Because I don't think any of us kind of grew up expecting that to be, you know, uh, the norm. And mm. I think it's something that, again, and I, I'm talking more about politics now than civil servants, there is a detachment, and it's been incredibly slow. Uh, and we now have a low, uh, low pay commission. It's given modest, small, regular increases. But in the context of the rent and the housing crisis, uh, those increases are, are almost irrelevant. And that's a political crisis that, you know, this, this forum might be useful to uh, concentrate uh, some attention okay, I just, to. I, I just want to let, let Kevin in on the, on the question. Can you remember where we were? Oh, sort of. I, I, I thought Joan was a populist until, until then we later had proper populists and then I discovered she wasn't. Um, one of, the, um, one of the big issues is time. There are particular points in the policy cycle when decisions are made very, very quickly. And when they're made quickly, they're generally made without analysis of evidence or maybe without any evidence. Yeah. And I go back to, I think it was 2006, 2006 2007, the decision to have a, a, an increased universal uh, child benefit. In large part, that was a response to the fact that there was no good information about actual childcare arrangements and how things were actually happening on the ground and therefore a universal approach was the, the only thing that could be done in the mm -hmm. time frame. And there's lots of examples like that where decisions are made because the budget is coming up and there is one, only one decision that can be made to do something in the time frame. It also goes back to the point of, uh, that was being made about programs for government and so forth. That's a period, as Joan was saying, of intense mm. discussion in a very short time but which nonetheless shapes and should shape the policy for the next three or four or five years. But there has to be a... Which becomes more and more, and more difficult as you have more segmented uh, operators coming into government. If it's two parties, that's a, a fairly straightforward proposition. But, but there has to be a mechanism of coming back to the evidence even after those sort of high-level decisions have been made. And finally, just in, in, in wild agreement with Joan, we do have a, a society in which there are very big divergences in incomes which are offset in our society by social transfers and by the tax system. And we have to think about whether that's long-term sustainable. So we do have to have those very large questions at the, at the top of the policy debate before we start deciding on all the micro things. What kind of society do we want? Is it a society of equity only through transfers or is it a, a society in which incomes are well well dispersed. Okay, Jill. Uh, just to say a couple of things. We, at the Institute for Government with some other people in, back in the UK, developed what we called an evidence transparency framework, which was designed to basically say, you know, government may or may not use evidence, and I think evidence-informed is better than evidence-based, certainly not evidence-determined policy. Um, but the government should just tell people why it was making the decisions it was and set out the evidence base. Uh, so we evaluated how much you could. Interestingly, the area in the UK, not Ireland, don't know about Ireland, that is systematically the worst for setting out the evidence base behind policy is taxation, is 
anything that comes in the budget is usually a pretty much evidence-free zone in terms of disclosing uh, why they did things. The thing that we do have in the UK, and I think this is where putting out data into the public domain is very good, is we have a very good um, sort of think tank community. The Institute for Fiscal Studies basically acts as a veto player on what the Treasury can and cannot get away with on saying the distribution affects the tax system and is massively influential in that role. A new one on the block, the Resolution Foundation, picking up a lot of the issues around things like the gig economy things. So because that data is out there, there's actually scope for a lot of other people to be holding government to account by analysing public data. So it's a real public good to get that out of the public domain. Okay, final comment on this. Robert, you want to please? No, I just like in terms of, of, of the revenue and, and, and tax, like the, the, the tax papers that inform taxation decisions are published, tax strategy yeah. groups are published a reasonable period after, after the budget. Mm -hmm. That's been going on for a while now. And there's a vast amount of information on yeah. the tax system in Ireland, so the policy, the policy options. Yeah. Like Deputy Burton's point about uh, corporation tax, obviously there's a constraint on the revenue and actually publishing information where you can then figure out yeah. which company. Yeah. Uh, so there's an aggregation challenge and they do the best they can in that. But leaving aside the corporation tax issue, mm -hmm. there is now, as you know, Jeff, you were, you were involved, there's a vast amount of information on income tax mm -hmm. and, you know, different, different deciles, how much people pay in income tax, which is incredibly uh, revealing. But I think ge generally, uh, we have an awful lot more data now, mm. incredibly more data than we would have had. Like Kevin's talking about childcare, as an example of childcare, we've got much more data now on childcare, Kevin, than when you were looking at those policies 15 years ago. But an awful lot more, and, and it, 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 it does more and more. We do know more when we're doing stupid things than we did in the past. We do but know that, we might, pretend, yeah. we might pretend we don't, but in actual fact, if you look at the data and we've got more data, we can get you a better. I, I'm gonna move on, because I, wanna, I do want to take, there's, there's uh, this lady here in. Right. You don't give the business name, that. And, yeah. and then maybe the gentleman no, in front. And, yeah. and there's a privacy issue, uh, I mean, I don't know. Um, Sarah Burke, Centre for Health Policy and Management in Trinity yes, College Dublin, and just to say I've really enjoyed the whole day, found it really interesting. Uh, and stimulating, uh, but I can't keep my mouth shut on the basis of the last discussion, right. and particularly in relation to comments coming from Robert Watt and all my academic research is around decisions made in health policy implemented and not implemented. And one of our, my key research findings, particularly a research project we did looking at health policy choices during the recession, during austerity, was that it was uh, decisions made by Deeper, which had particularly negative consequences, uh, uh, contrary to health policy uh, on the health system, particularly on health service users. And I could give you a list as long as my arm, but just to give you one tangible example, so the huge cuts to numbers working in the public sector was meant to be a bean counting exercise to bring down the costs in government. Uh, but in fact, it didn't really do that because we ended up paying much more for agency staff to fill those wards that were needed to care for people. And we've no idea about the impact that had on quality of care. So that you, you talk, and I really welcome everything you've said today, Robert, in terms of the, the aims and the aspirations of deeper and government policy making, but I suggest there's a gap between what you've talked about and what is the reality in the area that I know most about, which is health. And then the second point or question or a suggestion I'd like to make is you've talked about the importance of uh, reducing the complexity and actually I suggest deeper maybe think about understanding the complexity and particularly in relation to the health system that if you understood the complexity of the health system more and there's a burgeoning research going on at the moment about the complexity of, of healthcare 
then that could inform better policy decisions in the future. There are many things I could say, Sarah. I can't uh, go in and out of, of policy decisions taken by government and the civil service and service civil service. When I retire, I'll talk to you about what happened during that period. The government had to take very, very difficult, unpalatable decisions because we were broke. We had no choice. We had no money. We had no alternative but to cut the deficit. If we didn't cut the deficit and spend it the way we did, we would have had to take even more difficult decisions for the country. So we need to put it in the context. No cuts were implemented by GPR. Cuts were implemented by the government of Ireland because they had no choice given the horrendous circumstances in which we found ourselves. You can debate all day about how we got there, the rights or wrongs, but that was the reality situation that we faced uh, from 2008, 9, 10, 11, and, and so on. Uh, the system would. Do I think? Well, we've, there, are many, there are hundreds of decisions taken, hundreds of expenditure decisions taken, so we could debate which ones you think were good or bad. None of the decisions that were taken by any politician in relation to adjustments that were required were decisions that anybody wanted to take. But unfortunately, difficult things had to be done because the country didn't have any money and we were broke, and that's what we had to do, and that had implications. The situation within the health system now, though, uh, is that we have the fourth highest spending per capita in the OECD. It just, it, it just for our demography, it just for our demography. But the issue, the, but the issue within the, the issue in the health system, though, more and more people are the view that it's not the quantum of resource within the health system; it's how the system is structured, how we use the resource, the incentives people face within the system. So it's about how it's configured, not an actual issue about. So OECD reports, which look at total spending, tax, ta taxpayer spending. Private insurance and individual contributions people okay, so pay for their own EP or medicine. Yeah. Per capita. Yeah, like you know the OECD numbers are the OECD numbers. You know you can you can come up with alternative yeah, facts if you wish, but I'm just talking about the numbers I know. Sure. Look, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. We could have a debate about the public-private yeah. mix, but I'm just giving you the, fa the, the facts as I see them, as by the OECD. We add up the total amount of spending, whether it's public spending, private spending, or by individuals. We have the fourth highest spending per capita in the OECD. So, okay. so I, it's I'm not. I'm just saying it's not. Maybe it's more to it than. It's not just about. Uh, and I think, okay. I think, I think, I think, I think spending to end July is up. 9% this year, health spending to end, end July. I, Austerity I, I, ended a long time ago. I'm conscious on time. The gentleman in, in, in front of Sarah, um, just on the outside here, yeah. Um, just to broaden it out a little bit, but I know I'm conscious of time. Um, uh, democracy itself, really, and the forms of government that we have known are under threat throughout Europe. Uh, and we're facing into European elections where the two major blocs have never been weaker, the EPP and the socialists and so on. And the far right, it is now conceivable that the far right could take over the European Parliament. And this should be of huge concern, obviously, to all of us. So we need something, some infusion into democracy. And I think of what Robert was saying about open dialogue and so on. But it's true that the more information 
we give to the public, the more we lessen their fears. Fears are born out of ignorance, really. And if you have on top of that the popular press in some countries, and we've seen it in the UK in particular on the Brexit, pumping out anti-Europe propagandas for years. So all of this makes it necessary that we re-look at the way we're governing and, and that way we're talking to the public, if we are talking to the public at all levels, and of course we have such inequality in our, in our, uh, in our societies, all of our societies, that it's difficult to get the messages through, but efforts have to be made to a new. And when you look at the water fiasco, and there's no other word to describe the water thing, there was no information really, there was no real dialogue. It was only afterwards that we start hearing about the pollution of our rivers and lakes, our pipes uh, falling to pieces, uh, the, the, the quality of, of our water under suspect and so on. And, you know, if a lot of more preparation and, inf and information and public dialogue about water and its importance to us all. Yeah, and I think uh, that comes across also clearly in, in, in Jim O'Leary's um, report. I think that that is, it is in the preparation, it is in the advance work that, that, absolutely. Uh, that this will be said. There's a gentleman too back that uh, just wants to, I think we'll just take two together. Sorry, I'd like to address this to Kevin. Uh, obviously, the one big factor in Irish history tenure was the crash, the massive wipeout, and a lot of people suffered greatly. Not people like ourselves who were lucky to be academics and so on, but a lot of people suffered greatly. Now, we're talking about evidence. And I'll give you one person, Morgan Kelly, a couple of years before published, and it was clear we were heading. Was the Department of Finance asleep? Or were all the economists or all the other people asleep that didn't see this coming? Because it hit you at the very end when you had to make, well, the politicians had to make decisions. But the dramatic effect of what was happening, one could contend that a first year student would have seen it come. Could it come? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll happily comment, and I've written a book, you can read it. <laughs> um, that question, were people asleep? It's a very interesting question, and it's a very interesting phrase. And I did a presentation for a, a government department a year or two ago, and I, I took about 10 different major events in, in both international history and in recent Irish history. And I got headlines from newspapers and, all, and, and titles of books. And every time it was said, asleep at the wheel or asleep while on duty or those kinds of things. And the answer is no, nobody was asleep on duty. People were doing their jobs to the best of their abilities in the way that they thought they should and that they, they, and that they thought they were being directed to do. Even the great Morgan Kelly, whose perspicacity is to be admired, was talking in 2007 about you know, a fall off in, in house completions of, uh, I, I can't remember the numbers, but he was talking about a number that was maybe um, 50, 55, 60,000 uh, fall off. The Department of Finance at the time was talking about 40,000. It wasn't that people didn't see at least the elements of, uh, of, a, of a crisis building, but they didn't see in a way that said, yes, we know this is happening, and they certainly didn't see it in time. And part of this is, it's 
we have to find a, a, a different diagnosis to being asleep because that diagnosis isn't helping. It, it, it happens so often that good people seem in, in retrospect, or at least honest and uh, people of integrity, it seem in retrospect to have been asleep. That's not enough. It is something to do with perspective, complexity, inability to predict, and uh, maybe an un unwillingness to, uh, to say the scare story too often. I was at a meeting in 2007 in which a senior politician said, uh, but the Department of Finance has told us there'll be a crash in house prices. Now, in fact, we hadn't said that. He was <laughs> over-exaggerating. But on, on, on five occasions, and now this year it might actually happen. Well, if it had been said several, several years in a row, why wasn't it listened to? The guy who was contracted to investigate, investigate and review the Department of Finance said that we were not sufficiently shrill. We should have been uh, escalating and making louder our voices. But for us at the time, this was sort of not the role of civil servants to be making public comment more and more loudly over, over time. Maybe we should have. So I, uh, I, I don't know your answer, but it's a really good question. We have to find a new diagnosis. It's not a sleep, it's something else. Yeah, of course. I am sorry every single day of my life that I wasn't more wise. Oh, how, but but, but even, if I, even if I had been personally, I'm not sure it would have made that much difference. Well, I, I wasn't at, at that time. Yeah. But, but what I will tell you is that there, was, there, there is this sort of trope that, that, that this was a bunch of civil servants who weren't interested in their jobs or weren't doing their job. That's not a sufficient diagnosis for what actually happened. We need something better. We need a we need a public policy science that can that can investigate these supposed episodes of sleep, and and come up with a real uh, solution to them. Okay, this Okay, look, we're not going to we're not going to dwell on this one because actually I'm conscious the time is against us. Is is it an unrelated question? Very quickly. Well, I, I was very uh, sorry. I'm Brendan Kennelly. I'm from the economics discipline here. And I was very impressed with the contribution from the gentleman in front of me who I felt uh, brought in a big picture question, which and I especially like to hear, uh, Joan, your thoughts on that. Because I, one of the things that's, that's been mentioned a couple of times uh, is this question of the, the rise of populism. Mm -hmm. But there's a paradox in that rise, which is that as, as, I mean, on Sunday, the Swedish Democratic Party got 18% or almost 18% of the vote, and the, the reaction of the rest of the parties is we're not going to touch them. And one of the problems is that that response, that kind of a response to what, whether you like them or not, and I hate them, but they are legitimate political aspirations or preferences you know, I, I think this is a real big issue. And I, I, you know, I love Ireland that we don't have it. And we, to me, I think, if, if Jim, I know you're behind me somewhere and I have your next project for you. And I, I look forward to talking with you as much as I've enjoyed talking with you on the water one, which is what has made Ireland different? Because if you look around the, the world, the Western Northern European world or the North American world, there's something different here. Now, in that we, you know, there is no sign that we will have a party in the next election with 10 or 15% like they have in Germany and so on and so forth. So um, 
I know that's more a statement than a question, Joan. Well, I think maybe, um, you know, we do, like in the last election, there were several parties uh, who formed a group who at all their press conferences said their aim in the election was to destroy the Labour Party. That, that they repeated that ad nauseum and they, and, and they, they continued to repeat that. I mean, in a country where, the last time I was in this hall, by the way, was when Prince Charles was here, and I recall Jerry Adams standing by the third pillar down there. Anyway, um, you know, they, they set that out as their objective. Now, you can like or dislike the Labour Party. The Labour Party has its failings as well as its successes. But we have a supposedly ultra-left party, or series of them, which say that's their main political objective. Now, I think that's part of the problem. But I have to say in relation to the Swedish party, similar parties and elements of how President Trump has expressed himself. You know, in the kind of world that we live in, where we have a globalized financial system, where people, we, some of them are building houses down in southern New Zealand for when the cr next crash comes. I mean, the, the, the actual essence of democracy and participation is really, really important. And um, I, I think in a way, you know, sometimes, some of it is a media discourse, and I, I, I'm saying that in the context that that's a legitimate discussion by the media. But there possibly, uh, that's the new Swedish party, far-right party, I mean, they're racist. They descend directly and indirectly from Hitler. When Joe was speaking about democracy in Europe, the European Union came about in a significant way to end wars on the mainland of Europe. And so we're safe from that now. But, yeah, but I also think, though, that the things like the very poor comparative living conditions in low-wage, low-rent jobs with, you know, the kind of, like in Dublin at the moment, there's lots of uh, Brazilian and Venezuelan and South American students coming to learn English. And there are kind of, there could be 20 of them in one house, all being rack-rented, in some cases by landlords from their own country or agents of landlords from their own country. And okay, it's difficult for every citizen to know in detail about it, but it does weaken and coarsen the fabric of Irish life, just as, I said earlier, in my view, the complete loss of employment and the close down of business was an incredible disaster in terms of what happened uh, in Ireland. And then I saw last weekend, and I actually want to ask Robert about it, because at first I thought it was the central bank, but they've told me it's not them. I saw a little sidebar in one of the columns in one of the papers to say, as a consequence of the crisis, people here may know, that uh, senior bank executives who by and large earned two to 10 million a year pre the crash, uh, that uh, in the context of the crash, their pay uh, was capped. Their bonuses were capped, their paying bonuses, at a very reasonable half a million a year. Now I'm told that it, in fact it's the Department of uh, Finance is putting out a tender from consultants to explore this in the context of the very good things that have been said about public consultation, could a few just ordinary people be asked about that as well? Because I know 
in my heart of hearts, given what uh, Sarah has said about the health service, that inevitably, and you can say scientifically it's wrong, um, that you know somebody in a, a hospital bed, in a way, might compare their situation to a poor banker who's been struggling and yeah, okay, half a million. Do you, do you want to say anything on that, Robert? Oh, that's for the Department of Finance, I'm happy to say. <laughs> but, but I think, yeah, it is correct. There is a review of, of bankers' pay. And I think Come the on. The department has gone out looking for, uh, looking for solutions. Yeah, okay, all right. Look, at, I, I just want to get, before we finish, and I, I'm sorry if, if we've missed out on some questions, could I get a quick final word from each of you? And I suppose a, a trite question with a difficult answer. What have we learned from today? Jill, what, what would you take away from today? What did I take away from today? That it's incredibly useful to look back at policy histories and try and work out what happened, uh, get different people's perspectives on it, and gather it together, because actually, uh, one of the things we discover is that people in government themselves are always moving on to the next thing, so they never have the time and space to reflect. It's one reason why we've done it, and I think it's a hugely valuable thing to do. Just do it, even if you sit around and have a discussion and say, well, actually, that's not got that quite right, that's got that wrong, we didn't do it like that, but it's very, very useful to have these stimulus to thinking about, actually, why did we end up doing that? Um, because there's a really interesting sort of path determinism you get on. Kevin. Well, I think we've, we've, we've seen that it's easy to make mistakes. Yeah. And I think that, that work like Jim's is, is essential to, uh, to teach us the techniques of getting things right. Case studies are important. Okay, Joan. I was delighted to hear Jill specifically mention the UK tax credit system, because various uh, policy analysts in Ireland uh, keep suggesting that we should have a refundable tax credit system. And all I can say in terms of my experience of uh, public institutions and capacity in Ireland, we absolutely don't have the capacity to do that. We have a relatively generous social welfare system, far more generous than what the British system has become. But the British system has been broken, in my honest view. I recall talking to Gordon Brown years ago about that. Uh, the British system has been broken by that policy failure. So policy and implementing it successfully, I mean, some of the worst things in social, social welfare in England uh, and just people losing half their social okay, welfare I'm, suddenly I'm, are owed to that policy. I'm conscious of that. Richard, a quick... Uh, I reiterate Jill's point about the importance of, of looking back and the benefits of work like Jim's in, in doing that. I think we have a, a situation where it's important to learn from those kind of experiences, draw the lessons to inform future debates. Okay, Robert, final word on it. What have I learned? Uh, well, Sarah Burke doesn't like it, might have well, What should we learn? Uh, sorry, what sorry. what uh, should what we learn? Uh, Jim O'Leary still hasn't, doesn't own a tie, uh, or has burned all the ties he have and he's worked in Davies. Uh, what, have I, what have I learned? Uh, what I learned, I guess, well, what is have that, we learned? what have we learned? I think yeah. what we learned is that looking back, looking back has great value. Okay. And actually spending time to reflect and look back and try to learn the lessons can and and we, make, we, make, we make different mistakes in the future. Uh, and, and take it into the, into the future, as you say. Can I, on your behalf, can I, I thank the panel? Uh, can I thank Robert Watt, uh, Dr. Richard Boyle, uh, Deputy Joan Burton, Kevin Cardiff, and Jill Rudder. Thank you for your attendance and your patience.